the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, editor, yes, I got a new job, and man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. As I sit recording this, the sun is just rising on another International Women's Day, and so this episode is focused on women. And my guest was Mary Ann Stevenson from the Women's Budget Group, director of the Women's Budget Group. And we were joined by... Na 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 na, na 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 na, hey hey... Catherine Barnard, yes, Catherine Barnard, Professor of European Law at the University of Cambridge and Senior Fellow at the UK Inner Changing Europe. We talked about uh, how Brexit might affect women in particular, how it is already affecting women and the role women played in that Brexit result. But uh, Marianne is the Director of the Women's Budget Group and so we started talking about the economy and we started with Catherine talking about one particular uh, measure of the economy. Here we go. I remember Anand and I were doing a Anand Men and I were doing an event in Newcastle, mm-hmm. and um, and it, a, a mention was made of falling GDP if there was a, a Brexit. And somebody from the audience basically said, well, that's your GDP, it's not mine. People don't sense what the significance of a fall in GDP might be. I don't think people recognise that a fall in GDP will affect their lives in the way that it will. And I certainly think one of the reasons for the referendum result was that for a lot of people, the warnings about the economic impact of Brexit when they were already feeling like things mm. couldn't get any worse. People thought, well, you know, you're worried about it, so it's obviously going to be worse for you. We've, we're already having a bad time, so maybe it's time you suffered as well. You suffered as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, I remember on the night of the referendum, um, walking, walking back from a friend's house and going past a polling station, seeing two young men, one going in and the other shouting to the other, have you voted? And he said, oh yes, you know, I voted this morning, we're going to give them a kicking. And it was that sense of, you know, we're going to give them who have overseen austerity policies, have seen, you know, um, economic decline in some areas and have ignored it, a kicking. But in fact, the people who will be worst affected, um, particularly by a no-deal Brexit, but also by, you know, the interim arrangements that are on the table, are, are those people who felt things couldn't get worse because actually things can get worse. It's interesting you say uh, these guys said we want to give them a kicking. Isn't that a particularly male approach? Um, and did women vote differently or have a different approach to the referendum? I don't know. I mean, I haven't done research into mm. men's voting patterns. I do think that some of the rhetoric, particularly around taking back control, seems to me... Uh, particular particularly male particularly about the sort of entitlement to be in control to feel in control Mm. over your lives and that you know who do we want control over 
You know, mm. we want control over our lives. Do we want control over the people that we thought we should have control over? Yeah. The women in our lives, people from ethnic minorities that we think we should be in a position of, of not necessarily power over, but certainly superior economic status to. Yeah. And that sense, some of that sense of loss of control, some of it is absolutely economic and to do with poverty, and some of it, I think, is to do with changing norms and, and a sense of people losing that control. Yeah. Does that stack up for you, Catherine, that idea that there's a, there's, there may be a gendered aspect to the, the referendum outcome before we look at what has happened since and what might happen in the future? It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, there, amongst certain groups, there wasn't a dominance of women or men who voted leave. It was much more to do with um, age and educational background rather than gender as such. Um, but it is interesting. I, I've always felt that this, the, the language of control has always made me feel uncomfortable. At mm. one level, of course, everyone wants to be in control of their lives, and that was the genius of the, of the, of the campaign slogan. But in, in a sense, what's being argued for is independence, isolation and lack of collaboration. And one of the sort of stereotypical um, qualities that women have is, you know, they like to cooperate and collaborate more, mm. far more than this sort of um, no man is an island. Yeah. Uh. I mean, it would be interesting to see a breakdown of, you know, there were the two messages to the Leave campaign, one was about take back control and one was about more money for the NHS. Yeah. And if there was a gendered response yeah. to those messages. Um, you would expect one, wouldn't you? But. You would expect one, and I'm sure that the degree of micro-targeting that went on yeah. with the Leave campaign, yeah. there would have been NHS messages that were more heavily targeted towards women, because we know when you look at um, priorities in elections, for example, women are more likely to rate the NHS more highly than men. Yeah. Um, and that issue of isolation and, and you know, we can go it alone, um, rather than a sense of interdependence, yeah. is, as you say, a more stereotypically male um, position. So given, or if we are accepting that there are differences, oh, this is getting quite <laughs> quite problematic already, but we'll accept that there are differences in women and men, at least in the way they are socialised and the way they approach certain subjects. Um, so how is Brexit going to affect women differently to men? I mean, affect women differently to men because women and men are differently situated in the economy. They do different jobs. Women are more likely to be poor than men. They're more likely to depend on public services. Uh, they're more likely to manage household budgets, particularly in poorer households. Financial management tends to be a, a female responsibility in poorer households and, and sometimes a male responsibility in richer households. It depends what you mm. understand by financial management. I mean, the IPPR did some um, calculations of the impact of a, of a no-deal Brexit, mm. um, which showed that women would be hit harder than men in terms of jobs. And this appears to be largely because you know, the sectors that will be most affected um, by Brexit will be those that are dependent on trade with the EU for exports or for inputs. And we often look at exporting sectors. Mm. Um, so we look at you know, the motor trade, for example. Yeah. Um, but actually, if you look at some of the sectors that women predominate in, for example, the health service, um, really quite heavily dependent on the EU for a whole range of inputs. If the cost of those inputs goes up, where are the squeeze going to come? It may well have to come in, in jobs. 
Um, and there's been some, some calculations that the IFS did on whether or not women will, will lose jobs or will have hours and salaries cut. And because women tend to be in lower paid positions, there's less room to reduce salaries, so therefore squeeze salaries, therefore you're more likely to get job cuts. No, hang um, on, surely women in the NHS will earn more because all the foreign staff are going to disappear and the ones who are left, the British women, will be able to say, no, we were, you know, they'll have amazing collective bargaining power. And they'll be rich. Unfortunately, we know it doesn't work like that. And we know, for example, there's huge um, uh, labour shortages in um, social care. Yeah. Hasn't had an impact on the pay of social care workers. Social care is still incredibly badly paid, even though it's very, very difficult to recruit social care workers. Mm-hmm. That, that kind of automatic assumption that, um, you know, a shrinking pool of workers will mean higher wages doesn't necessarily hold true for... Like economics teachers were lying to me, <laughs> what you're telling me. I think it's just more complicated yeah, than that. Okay. So there's the employment impacts, there's the consumer impacts. Um, women, as I said, are more likely to be the managers of household budgets. Yeah. If we're going to see increase in the price of food because we are, you know, we have import a large amount of food from the UK if we have a falling pound at the same time as increased tariffs the price of food is likely to go up Um, that will hit poorer households harder than richer households because they spend a larger proportion of their income on food women are more likely to live in poor households but also women are um, what's known as the shock absorbers of poverty so women are more likely to go without food or mm. clothes or heat for themselves in order to shield their families from the impact of poverty. Um, and thirdly, there's the impact on public services. Um, and that there will vary depending on the choices the government makes. But if we have a government that makes the takes the same response to the financial shock of Brexit as they took to the 2008 financial crisis with further cuts to spending on public services, we know that that will affect women harder than men because women are more likely to depend on public services, they're more likely to work in the public sector and they tend to have to increase their unpaid work in order to fill the gap when services disappear. That's quite an important point, isn't it? Is it what you're saying is not just theoretical because women tend to have these positions, therefore this will happen. We know it's happened because it's happened over we the last 10 years. So it's we've happened got over the, the last 10 years. We've, uh, got, the evidence. we've got the evidence that austerity has hit poorer people harder than richer people. In every income group, it's hit women harder than men. And it's hit black and minority ethnic women and disabled women hardest of all. So is it fair to say then that Brexit will hit women because women tend to be poor rather than because women tend to be women, <laughs> if you take my point? But women tend to be poor for because gendered reasons yeah. to do with the gender division of labour. Women tend to be poor because they are more likely to take on caring responsibilities, or men are less likely to take on caring responsibilities, um, and this has an impact on their earning power. Could we not say that one of the advantages of Brexit is that it would give um, the government much greater freedom to say, look, we recognise that people voted to leave because they wanted more money to be put in the NHS, and this gives an opportunity for the country to reset itself and actually try to work out the things it values. Well, I think that 
opportunity would exist whether or not we were leaving the European Union. The problem with leaving the European Union is there is likely to be less money available for government to spend. You know, the reason we haven't had the spending on public services that has been needed over the past few years is because of a set of political choices. It was choices to cut taxes at the same time as cut spending on public services and social security. Um, at any point in that period, the government could have made a series of different political choices. I think it's unlikely um, that this government would make choices to spend vastly more money on public services at a time when you know, tax receipts are likely to be significantly down. Um, they're unlikely to want to put up taxes. As, you say, as I said, we've got the evidence of the last 10 years to work off, but it doesn't mean it has to be like that in the future. No, that's true. So what could happen is the government could say, well, we've got extra... The way to boost the economy, as everybody knows, is to get more women into work. So therefore, what we'll do is we'll make uh, flexible working much easier. We'll have more men on paternity and shared parental leave. So they'll do more domestic work, and that'll free women up to go back to work. And it'll be amazing. And Absolutely. That could I mean, they, they could make those decisions. And one of the things that we have argued is that in order to prepare for the economic shock of Brexit, the government needs to invest heavily in social infrastructure, which is care, health, education, and so on. What seems likely is that, um, you know, we don't know what's going to be in the spending review. I doubt very much the government knows exactly what's going to be in it at the moment, but um, that there will be infrastructure investment, but it's likely to be physical infrastructure investment. Um, and we know that that tends to benefit men more than mm. women in terms of jobs. We did some modelling of investing 2% um, of GDP in the care sector compared to 2% in construction and found that uh, investment in care created twice as many jobs, nearly as many jobs for men, vastly more jobs for women, uh, because care is a much more labour-intensive sector um, and you have huge but wider it, benefits in terms of freeing up larger numbers of women to enter the workplace and dealing with a crisis in care. But it is associated with women and therefore low status and therefore no government wants to put money in it because they want to go build big shiny trains instead. There is a particular thing that ministers do like to appear in hard hats and high-vis jackets. Yes. Um, not with bedpans. Not with bedpans and, and a bar of soap. And I think, you know, one of the things you'll see, I think, when people are looking at the economic impact of Brexit is it's very easy to focus on those industries which, which will be very badly hit, where there is a single place, a factory, that closes or reduces its staff. Because it's, it's easy to quantify. You can look at the number of jobs lost. It's much harder to quantify jobs lost across the service sector in that area. And when you're looking at investment programmes, people are looking at, we must do something to replace the jobs lost in this factory, and not necessarily the range of other jobs that have been lost. So if you look at, mm -hmm. for example, the impact, you know, what's been going on on our high streets in the last few years, and the, the loss of jobs in retail, and those are largely women's mm -hmm. jobs. If there had been the same number of jobs traditionally done by men lost at that same period of time, it would be have much higher profile, I think. There would be much more attention to pay to what's going on here. There's a whole load of people losing their jobs. What are we going to do to replace those jobs? How are we going to help those people retrain or find work elsewhere or so on? And so you know, that's another way in which the impact is gendered because it's about 
what what gets paid attention to? Um, so just before we sort of move on to discuss the gendering of Brexit, the gen, gen what's past participle of gen, genderization, the gen, I don't you know. Can anyway, say gendering. Yeah, gendering is fine. Sounds a bit. Yeah, either way, there's a word, there's probably a word. Um, can we can we come up with any? I mean, we've come up with potential positives, albeit quite unlikely. I mean, for example, my scenario, I'm not aware of anybody who's actually making that argument, apart from, you know, it's a very good book called Dads Don't Babysit by, uh, or by David Fried and James Miller, yes. Um, <laughs> if Anand can plug his book on this podcast, I can plug mine. <laughs> um, but I'm not aware of anybody uh, serious, if you like, who is making that case. Um, can we come up with any actual, concrete, definite benefits from Brexit for women? You'd be able to get rid of VAT on sanitary products. It's an edit. Someone said something boring or illegal. Maybe told some slanderous story about Boris Johnson. You'll never know. Can you do this, Catherine, because you're cleverer than me? Can you take the role of the anti-feminist who says you shouldn't be looking at women as a group anyway because they're people or something like that. You've probably had this criticism so all I've the time. You're criticism. probably the best so the person to come up with that I've argument. The criticism is that it's really patronising to women yes. to talk about specific gendered issues. Yes. Now, th- that seems to me a ludicrous argument. It's not patronising. It's not saying that um, women are somehow uh, weak or helpless or won't be able to cope. It's saying... Let's look at the evidence. We know women are differently situated in the economy. So here's, um, here's a thought. Could you say an upside of Brexit is that if women are badly impacted, then more women will eventually take on roles like your own to try and become advocates for women. And that leads me to thinking about women in politics. Mm-hmm. And, and you, with it seems to me great foresight, wrote a book in 1997 about uh, women politics and the media and so my question to you is do you think it's harder or easier for women to get into politics um, now than in 97 well there's certainly more women in politics than there was in 1997 Um, you know 97 was a breakthrough year because of Labour's policy of all women shortlists um, and in response to that other parties upped their game slightly although it's you know still the Labour Party still all women shortlist that has led to Labour having a, a higher proportion of women than any of the other parties um, and in Scotland and Wales you see a higher proportion of women um, in the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly that might have been expected looking at Scottish and Welsh politics prior to those two bodies being established again because Labour used um, positive action. Um, So there are more women there and that makes it uh, more normal. There is a recognition that you need to actually take action to challenge structural discrimination within parties, that this isn't just a problem of not enough women coming forward, that it's actually a problem of, of the way in which parties make their selections. However, I don't think we've cracked it. Um, I think if we, if we no longer had the all-women shortlist policy in Labour, then the number of Labour women MPs might well fall and there would be less pressure on the other parties to keep, keep that focus on getting women in. I think there's a, there's a competition which 
is forced in labour through structures within the party and then on the other parties because they can't fall too far behind labour. Can I just follow up, because obviously the other bit of your book was on women in the media, mm. and of course we now know that um, women are particularly targeted in social media, and it's also rather striking that the new grouping, the independent grouping, is of course dominated by women. Does this mark a sea change in politics, or is it actually a cry for help? I think... I think it's partly a, a reaction to the fact that women are more targeted on social media. So, you know, some of them, particularly um, Luciana Berger, who, who left the Labour Party, um, in part that's to do, I mean, obviously there's issues within the constituency as well, but partly to do with, with the um, abuse that she was receiving on social media and the sense that she wasn't, wasn't getting support within her own party. The subtitle, the, the title of the book in 1997 was A Glass Trapdoor and it was based on the idea that when the general election was called, um, the women disappeared. So they disappeared as pundits and they disappeared as journalists actually and they disappeared as politicians. There were far fewer of them than there were um, during normal media coverage. And I think that's also true of the Brexit debate. We know because there has been research done that um, uh, women were much less likely to appear in discussions around Brexit, um, much less likely to appear as as experts. Um, and post um, the referendum, obviously now with Theresa May as Prime Minister, we have at least one woman who is kind of central to some of those debates. Um, and you've got um, people like Yvette Cooper who've been very, very active and you know seem to be active, but largely it has still appeared to be an argument among men. Yes. Um, and I think social media, I think some of what we're seeing on social media is in its most extreme form what we were talking about earlier about that notion of taking back control. And it's about space and it's about who's entitled to occupy space and who's entitled to speak in what space. And there is, you know, concerted, very clear and concerted attempts to silence women who talk about politics on social media and also silence people of colour. If you look at the people who receive the most abuse on social mm. media. Um, well, the people, it's Diane Abbott mainly. Diane Abbott in terms of politicians. Hits two boxes. But if you look, if you look, you know, when you're looking at different groups who mm. might be speaking out on things, the, the two people who get the most abuse, you look at the journalists, for example, are getting abuse online. Yeah. It's, it's um, uh, female journalists and journalists of colour. Have you had that, Catherine, as both a woman and an expert, yes, um, an expert, neither of whom are no, particularly popular no, exactly. with the Brexit community? No, it's um, at times you think, you know, for a, you know, academic who usually yeah. lives in a rather closeted world, it has been eye-opening to see what, um, what, I, what comes up on social media and elsewhere. Um, and it's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it, because you mentioned, obviously, Theresa May's Prime Minister, Beck Cooper, of course, the two leading voices on the BBC about Brexit at the moment are Laura Koonsberg and Katya Adler. So there are increasingly female voices there, but equally, Laura Koonsberg had to have um, body protection um, at the Labour Party conference. So you know, it's, it's not straightforward, and yet you have to wonder why. Why is a woman's view on Brexit more controversial <laughs> than a man's view? I don't think it's about a woman's view on Brexit. I think it's about women having a view. I think it's about women trying to occupy space in a in a new public sphere so you know social media is still relatively new um the rules haven't quite been worked out there are su suddenly you know particularly on twitter 
women were colonising Twitter, active on Twitter, speaking on Twitter, and there is a concerted attempt to push women back into their boxes. It's an edit, someone said something boring or illegal, maybe told some slanderous story about Boris Johnson, you'll never know. I've written about it. I mean, Brexit has been a willy-waving contest, hasn't it? It's been, you know, we had the, the, the three Brexiteers for a while around the table. Mm. I mean, you can't get much more sort of phallic than that. Um, you know, as you say, there's been, it was the male voices that dominated. We've done the research. Um, well, I think and it, there's also a particular kind of fantasy about back to control, power and control and autonomy and the amount of autonomy that we will have and the idea that the UK is somehow this kind of uniquely placed country that will be able to, you know, get deals that we couldn't get as a member of a much bigger trading bloc, which is a slightly odd fantasy. It will be able to, you know, hold its own in, in negotiations with the US or China or whatever else and and have control over our laws. Actually, in a in a globalized world, we have increasingly reduced control you know nation states have increasingly reduced control over what what laws they decide to set particularly around trade agreements because trade deals are, are a trade-off and if you're wanting to do a trade deal with the US for example then they are going to demand access to um, the NHS for their companies to bid to deliver services they're going to want um, access to our markets for um, you know, beef that's been pumped full of hormones, chicken that's been washed in chlorine, all of those sorts of things. And it is going to be difficult for us to resist as a relatively small country. Um, and But it is back to that, that fantasy of control and um, kind of British exceptionalism or something, that we can, we can impose our will on the world. We can go around saying, no, we will not accept this, we will not accept that, rather than recognising that actually... The EU is our best chance of resisting some of those pressures um, and resisting some of the pressures from, from large corporations, you know, for a race to the bottom on regulation, on corporation tax and everything else. Um, but it is, it's that, it's the kind of, it's the lone male fantasy, isn't it? It's the, the Marlborough man or the, you yeah, know, we can, we can kind of ride off on our own, be independent, be answerable to nobody. It's not the way the world works. Well, let me try and put a positive spin on that. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, Empire 2.0, an empire, was a, empire was obviously a hugely gendered uh, uh, thing. Um, but it's the last spasm of old toxic masculinity and it will fail and that version of masculinity will be wiped away and so the feminist progress will march right through the middle of it and we will end up further forward than we were before Brexit happened. Well it's interesting, I, when I, I used to do a lot of work on women's political representation and one of the things that you found in that if you look around the world is that points of crisis, whether it's a political crisis or an economic crisis, are often points at which the situation of women either improves massively or goes backwards. Mm. Um, and there's all sorts of factors about which way it goes but it, it changes. Yeah. So you could say, you know, I mean, if you look at Rwanda after the genocide, mm, yeah. massive increase of women in, in um, politics. If you look at, at South Africa at the end of apartheid, again, massively, massive increase of women in politics. But equally, 
When situations become uncertain, when people become frightened of the future, one of the things that people can cling to, fight for, take to the streets for, is the idea of returning to older, simpler times when we knew what was what. And part of knowing what was what was that we knew what women's place was. And that traditional gender roles become a sign that things, you know, normality has been restored in some way. And I think for some people that that take back control, I mean, this isn't by any means um, referring to, you know, the majority even of people who voted Leave, people voted Leave for all sorts of complicated reasons. Um, uh, but there is an element within that campaign and within some of the people who are most active around that, which is about going back, you know, back to the glory days of empire, back to the days when, you know, Britain stood alone, you know, people have kind of um, Second World War fantasies, kind of kind of forgetting the role of, you know, um, Soviet Union and the United States in the war. But, you know, that, that myth, we have these myths of yeah. ourselves as this kind of exceptional nation that can stand alone and, and can do it alone. And part of that is about kind of dominant masculinity. But we can't men. But no, you can't, can't go, go back, back and there's people like you out making the case and there's women's marches and it'll all be fine. And we'll end up further ahead than we were we are now. Right? Okay, so go on. if you're a campaigner, you have be. to be optimistic <laughs> because otherwise you just get depressed and give up and go home. Yeah. I actually think we're heading for very scary times. I think what we're seeing around the world is a rise of right-wing populism um, in, you know, in the United States, in Brazil, across Europe. Um, and I think that whatever happens with Brexit, a lot of the people who voted for it will feel betrayed. Uh, the Women's Budget Group fancies a citizens' assembly as mm -hmm. um, a solution to all this. Uh, not, not to, you know... <laughs> misogyny and, and the patriarchy and all that but it might offer some sort of way out of Brexit or some solution. I think it's part Just of a process of taking things work. forward so I don't think it is in itself a solution I think what you need is a process. I think one of the problems is we, we went into a referendum without a clear idea of what we were voting for. You know, we didn't have a clear idea of what leave meant um, which meant that people had all sorts of you know, were able to project all sorts of ideas onto leave um, and, and then Theresa May drew up a series of red lines, I think, based on what she thought was important about how, mm. why people voted leave. So, you know, immigration was a key issue, so therefore you have to have um, uh, control of borders. So would you have... And so the idea of a citizens' assembly is to allow proper consideration of, you know, what is feasible, what is doable, what do we want our... What do we want our society to look like? How do we how do we make those trade-offs in a much more considered and thought-through way than we were able to have before the referendum? And then I think you probably have um, an option for for leaving that you present to the British people alongside Remain. Um, obviously, the Irish have done citizens' assemblies for fairly big issues, mm -hmm. and UK and a changing Europe have done it citizens' is. assemblies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, are they good? Are they was, a way was, forward? Yeah, it was a lively event, it must be said. So it was done out of Manchester, it was a long weekend together. Um, the group was um, 
selected for to, to satisfy all the different criteria, demographics, and remain with us leave. And actually, I think they found they surprised themselves by how much they mm. got out of it and how much they learnt in quite a short space of time. And actually, what was really striking at the end of it was that the proposals that they went for were actually rather moderate and centre-ground sort yeah. of proposals, having come at it from quite strong leave-remain perspectives. Who'd have thought a centrism often wins elections and is generally where everybody coalesces? Wow, well, well done. It's been a whole weekend. To find, <laughs> I could have told you that you know, before you even started. Let's do, first of all, um, Brexit family fortunes. It's Brexit family fortunes. And here is your host, James Miller. Um, Brexit family fortunes is based on the work of the the BPP. Yeah, Brexit you, policy. Brexit policy, policy yeah. panel it is, and it's a hundred experts. And UK to Changing Europe asked their hundred experts things, and in Brexit family fortunes, I get you two to try and anticipate what those people answered to the questions. It's quite good. For example, in the most recent one, the hundred experts experts were asked. Will Labour policy move to a second referendum? <laughs> Everyone said no. Fourteen <laughs> percent said yes, it will. Uh, chances of a second referendum. How many of the hundred experts thought there will be a second referendum? Twenty percent. Twenty-five percent. Thirty-three. Oh, you're quite pessimistic. That's because you think there's only a twenty percent. But you do anyway. You might be more. Of a... <laughs> I think it's down from forty-five percent anyway, so they're they're backing off that. Although obviously now Labour's changed policy, that might be different. Um, Theresa May's deal to pass the Commons. How many of the hundred experts reckon it will pass? Ooh, seventy percent. Ooh, not big. Um, as it stands, I mean, this was what? asked a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago. Um, Less than 50%. 60%, so halfway between the two of you. But again, that is up from 42%, so they're getting more positive about that. Um, Let's finish with the recommendations. uh, In the unlikely event, this podcast has not proved sufficiently enlightening. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Um, A recommendation for people to understand Brexit, um, anything at all. Marianne, what have you thought of? Can I have two things? Yes. So, the first one is there is um, a book that's just come out, um, pulled together by um, academics at Sussex, which is um, Feminist and Queer Perspectives on Brexit, and has a range of chapters in it, which I think are very interesting. Um, Wow. But the thing that was coming through my mind when I was travelling down on the train this morning was actually Titanic. What? Um, I mean, I like it, but I can't see it. What's the... Well, it feels to me like we're sailing straight towards an iceberg. Hang on, when you say Titanic, you're talking about the journey of the film, the the actual film. Well, the film... It's certainly been going on a long time, so it's got that into common, yes. But, you know, we're sailing towards this iceberg, and this is the iceberg of no deal, which is a... horrific crash and disaster in which a large number of people are still believing what they were told which is that we're unsinkable and we'll be fine but even if we serve it swerve it and we hit it we get some sort of deal we're kind of hold below the water line so we might not sink straight away we'll just take on water slowly most people will get to the lifeboats 
The poorest will come off worse. The poorest That's will come good. off worse. That's good. I'm with you there. Some people, some people won't make it to the lifeboats. Most people will, but they won't be anywhere near as comfortable as they were when they were on the boat. Who's Leonardo DiCaprio in this scenario? Oh, gosh. Who's going to slip away so into the water? Who's going to slip oh, away into the water? Oh, I've ruined the ending there. I hadn't got that far. For no apparent reason. I mean, he doesn't but have to slip away into the water because there's that plenty of wood lying around. Of we're sailing anyway. straight at an iceberg uh, and while who's, being who's, told that the boat is unsinkable. Who's Kate Winslet? Who's the posh lady who lives, even though she's really quite annoying? <laughs> uh, well, should we let it, the listeners it, make it, their Yeah, all right, yes. Yeah. Send in your, your responses to that one. Titanic's a good one. Um, I met Leonardo DiCaprio once. He's amazing. Um, Sorry, I'm just name dropping terribly there, but um, he is a very beautiful man. He's like got a weird, you know, Hollywood glow. He's just somehow different to the rest of us. Um, sorry, Catherine, I've, I've name dropped badly there and set you up. You're going to have to top Leonardo DiCaprio there. What have you brought? Uh, I could mention Dev Patel, who I've also met and interviewed. Who's he? Is <laughs> he an academic? Is he a wonk? He's not a wonk. He's a very, very fine actor. Is he? Who appeared in um, uh, Hotel Marigold, and when I met him, he was in a film about Ramanujan, the brilliant Indian mathematician who came to Cambridge. Well, it sounds like an interesting film, but I Good still film. don't know who he is. Would you like to know my recommendation? Sorry, yes, please. I've got a very boring recommendation. Oh, I don't bore it. Well, we've got Titanic, right? We've got an so interesting one, so you can have a boring one. You can light and shade, in it? So, government on the 26th of February produced yes. its report on implications for business and trade of a no-deal exit mm. on the 29th of March. Now, I realise that that is not a snappy title, and it's already probably turned most people off, but the advantage of this document is it's short unlike most government documents, and covers okay. a lot of the main areas in about 15 pages. And it spells out in 51 paragraphs, and it covers everything from um, tariffs to data to border issues and so forth. And it's not hysterical, it's quite balanced, um, but it does say that um, a lot of people are not ready. It concludes by saying... The short time remaining for the 29th of March, even shorter when this podcast yes. goes out, doesn't allow government to unilaterally mitigate the effects of no deal. Even where it can take unilateral action, their lack of preparation by business and individual is likely to add to the disruption experienced in a no deal scenario. Well, it's not very, not very cheery read, is it? We've it's got, not, got Titanic, which doesn't end very well. <laughs> and, it also, uh, that end well it also talks about, you know, the... When it talks about the economic impact of no deal, it's talking about 15 years in the future because it's saying it cannot predict what the impact of no deal would be in the short term. There is no way of telling. So it might all be all right. So there you go. Happy International Women's Day. If you're listening on the day this podcast came out, uh, I hope you had a good International Women's Day if you're listening sometime in the future. Uh, lots of stuff, interesting stuff there. That was a really interesting chat. I thought Marianne clearly knows her stuff in a massive way. And uh, it certainly is an aspect of all this Brexit stuff. Um, well, <laughs> it's an aspect of all news to some extent, the way gender is uh, overlooked often. So it's good to talk to her about uh, those issues. If you want to uh, have your say in any of those issues, please do get in touch. I am at Political Yeti on Twitter, 
and my website is james-miller.com. You can get me through there and you can see the full list of all the recommendations ever made by our guests and by the UK and a Changing Europe experts on every episode of this podcast so far. You can get that on my website. If you want to get in touch with UK and a Changing Europe, they are at UK and EU on Twitter and their website is ukandeu.ac.uk. We do have a winner for my competition about trying to find the link between um, what was it between uh, family fortunes and Brexit. That's right, we've got a winner. But unfortunately, um, let's just say this episode has been slightly a bit of a, a struggle to pull together due to some technical issues on my side, uh, mainly my old computer uh, falling off a shelf and smashing to the ground. Um, so I haven't had time to find uh, the details of who won that competition or indeed what the prize will be. But I shall do in time for the next episode. You can find out who that winner was, what the answer was, and what amazing bit of UK in a changing Europe tat they have won. This has been the Brexit breakdown from the UK in a changing Europe. The music has once again been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. And this has been supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Thanks for listening. Come back next time. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.